Hello and welcome to The Wise Why. This morning I am joined by a really good friend of mine, Joe Francis, and we have a huge amount in common, uh, starting in IT sales and now obviously working together, if you look at what his business does, uh, in the in confidence on camera for me and in creating those videos for you. But as usual, The Wise Why is not about me. It is all about my guests. So I get to shift over this week because I'm not in the hot seat and say, Joe, the floor is yours. <laughs> Thank you very much, Kirsty. And it's always nice to receive a, 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 an introduction like that. And um, yeah, I mean, let me just tell you and your audience, I'm, I'm Joe Francis. I'm a, a video producer and director uh, with a specific focus on uh, the corporate sector. So I help companies with a number of their business challenges solve those by unleashing the power of digital video. Um, Based in the southeast, and I've been at this for about uh, 10 years, although I began this business in India, and um, we've worked across a range of companies and um, a range of styles of videos over the years. But what I wanted to do was perhaps give you a little more of a sort of background on, on me uh, and my, my sort of journey to this position. So I uh, grew up in a, in a village in in the southeast of the uk i um had a fairly i i would class as an uneventful uh you know normal kind of childhood we just played around were cycling playing football and cricket and i wouldn't say i was one of those kids that um had an extremely strong idea of what i wanted to do later in life early I wasn't that guy. I wasn't that guy who at, at the age of eight says, I want to be an actor or, you know, I want to uh, be a doctor or, or whatever like that. I just kind of went with the flow. And um, I would say I was I was okay at school. I, uh, I certainly enjoyed primary school. Uh, secondary school was a, was a little trickier and there, there were some motivation issues, I think. But I kind of followed a, what I would class as, a bit of a wave. I was being carried by a wave. So rather than very proactive thought processes about, okay, I'm going to do O levels and then I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. I wouldn't say that was me. I was kind of carried along on this wave. I felt the normal thing to do would be, okay, after O levels, do A levels. After A levels, do a degree. And so that's the way I went. Um, I went to University of Leeds. I did a degree in physics, not because I was you know, enormously interested in going into research or teaching, which are you know the kind of areas that um, typically people do with with physics, but simply th that was the subject that came most naturally to me at um, at school. So I, I I did that, and then in the mid nineties, I went into the workplace. So I uh, my background in getting into video production is a little different from many people in that most of them come from the broadcast and media background or advertising. Um, I did. I came from the other side of the lens from corporate life. I was working in sales and marketing uh, for, for various companies. I worked for BT for a number of years in a number of roles as well, project management, sales, account relationship management. And I, I learned a lot from those experiences in terms of how to manage clients and also what the, the pain points are that could be solved. Uh, in the early 2000s, I, I kind of um, wanted to make some changes to my career. 
Um, telecoms was having a hard time because of the dot-com bubble, and I was looking to upskill myself. So I went and did an MBA, and uh, I was doing that at one of the top universities, uh, business schools in India, the Indian School of Business, um, which was in its infancy at the time, but had really strong support from corporates and so on. Um, and after after my MBA, then I came back into the workplace, although in a different industry. I was in the IT consulting uh, space for a very large uh, multinational. But there came a point, I think, in my late 30s, mid to late 30s, I'd always had a an idea, perhaps, that um, I might like to start something myself, but I never knew how. I honestly had no clue <laughs> how to how to start a business or you know what what might be uh, an avenue to pursue. So I thought, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to take a little bit of time out and do what they called me time. <laughs> so I did that. I had built up a little bit of a nest egg. I was married with uh, at least one kid at that point, um, but I, I had, I suppose, some degree of a safety net at that point. Um, so I, we we moved as a family to India in the early 2010s, and um, I took basically a couple of years off, just um, figuring out what I was going to do, and just resetting uh, resetting my mind. And then after that, I I decided, okay, there's something here where I can utilize all of the skills that I've built up in relationship management, in understanding corporate processes where the burgeoning field of digital um, photography and film was becoming a lot more accessible. So I decided to, to set up a business in this space. And I, I learned documentary filmmaking. I worked with a few DOPs uh, and other guys. <laughs> I'm going to call you on that. Uh, <laughs> we talked about this about earlier. You're going to pick me up on that. I am going to pick you up on that because, and, and it's, it's interesting because Obviously, I, I not obviously. I hate that word. It's such a bad word to use. But um, you know, I, I work in the corporate space because I worked in the corporate space, so I understand. Now I'm going to use it. The jargon, which you just yes. did. So, Absolutely. what does DOP mean? <laughs> right. So, yeah. Sorry about that to uh, to all of uh, Kirsty's uh, audience. Um, a DOP is a director of photography. Thank you. And <laughs> takes the lead responsibility um, along with the director for framing and and lighting um, scenes. So when we're um, when we're working at client sites, I mean, in the early days, I used to do everything myself. Nowadays, uh, you know, I don't. I obviously hire cameramen. I have uh, uh, other specialists, uh, creatives in their fields for editing, motion graphics, animation, and so on. But yes, a D DOP is there to make the scene look great, light it properly, frame it properly, and uh, carry out any kind of camera movements and so on that would be required on that scene. So, yeah, is, is, is that okay? Uh, that is, and that has just come in and gone, thank you for clarifying. So as we're just quickly talking about lighting, we were talking about this in the studio before we came live. Lighting is really important and people need to do this at home. People forget that actually today your home office, now I earn money doing this, but let's give some snippets of information away. Right. It's always useful to help people. So your home office is now a home studio. You know, if you were sitting where I am today, you would see I've got a high-end microphone. It's got game control. I've got a streaming camera. I have got a light above my lens. I've got a light to the right of me. I've got a light lighting my wall. How important is it to get your lighting right for a video call? Well, it, it, it's absolutely important. And, and 
the, the reason is, if you have the same ambient lighting hitting the subject as well as the background, then your subject won't pop. So really what you want to do, it, it, it takes a little bit of understanding of how cameras work. But what you want to do is put a lot of light on your subject, and then your camera needs to have its settings for that exposure. Now what will happen when you have your, your subject exposed properly is the background will become darker. And that creates separation between the subject and the background and makes your subject pop. Obviously, there's a lot more to it than that. There's three-point lighting setups and all sorts of different types of diffusion and black flags and things like that. But essentially, the purpose of lighting is to make your subject stand out. Love it. Thank you. And I couldn't have said it better. And hopefully I am popping and standing out this morning. You are. Very much so. <laughs> so you moved in. I'm, I'm intrigued because you moved to India. You went mm. back. What was that like? Well, um, you, you mentioned we went back. Actually, we, we didn't go back. No, of course, you didn't go back. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. because I, I, was, I was born here in the UK. Um, so that's why I have this, you know, this uh, <laughs> strong southern accent, if you like. Um, but obviously, my, my parents were, were from India. They, they came in, uh, to the UK in the 60s. Um, and there was a connection. You know, we did have the odd few family holidays uh, to, to India. And there was a connection there. Um, my wife is from India. And um, she obviously has, has family there, as do I. So there were some um, benefits during this time when, when I was reassessing how I was going to move my career forward um, for us being in India, not least um, for the kids, because there were some uh, schooling advantages for them as well. Um, so we, we chose to go back and um, I had that period of time uh, to kind of reflect on things. Uh, I wanted to learn, you know, some, some of the Indian languages. I, di I didn't manage to do that, unfortunately, although I, I picked up uh, the odd few bits and pieces while I was doing my uh, my MBA. But it was a really good experience. Obviously, India is now recognized as one of the uh, fastest growing economies globally and is, the, I think, now the, the most populous country in the world or about to be very, very soon overtaking China. So it's um, it was relevant to get some exposure to that geography. And when I began the business, it was really, really useful as well because I had a huge alum alumni network in India. And of course, people, once they come, come out of their MBAs, they all end up working in large multinationals usually. And um, therefore I had what I would call a warmer access to some of these um, major companies than I would otherwise have when, when I'm just starting out. So it was really, really, really useful. Um, it was a great experience. And events conspired to make us come back to the UK. My son, uh, my eldest son, who's like really into uh, maths and was about to go to university, he was very, very keen to uh, study in the UK. And um, we came back, not just for that reason, there were some uh, family health issues that I needed to deal with as well. So um, a number of events conspired, and I, I always feel that there's a little bit of fate involved in some of these things. When the stars align in a particular way, you sometimes have to have to go with that. And uh, we came back, and uh, we've been here since uh, uh, end of 2019. 
And, um, you know, <laughs> it was great. And then, of course, COVID. So, yeah, yeah. That, that, that was really tough, I think. I, I've had a couple of guests on. We've talked about the challenges that, that COVID posed to us. Because um, it, it's people say that it's over, but it's not over. We're still adjusting. We're still coming out of it. You can see it in the children at school. They're still traumatised, you know. What was I saw yesterday that it was yes it was I think it was a, a casting director posted on um one of the social sites that it would been a year it'd been three years ago that the theatres all closed. That's still got an impact. Of course. It's all had an impact. And of course, as as you uh, know from things like uh, mask wearing and so on, I don't think everyone understood the developmental ramifications that that might have had on kids who need to see people's yeah. expressions and and their mouth moving to with their own language development. So that yes, the the cascading effects of this continue, I guess, to this day. Did you find it challenging? Because obviously, we all had to adjust for for COVID. I mean, I, I closed the business. You know, I launched and closed, and and went dormant for six months to nearly a year. What about you? How did you adjust to to dealing with it? Because oh, we all had to. Yeah. Of course, absolutely, and and moving from India to to back to the UK came with its own channel challenges as well, because a lot of my base was uh, was you know not there, so I had to kind of restart things here, and that was clearly very very difficult at that time because everything was locked down, the offices you know no one was there, and they had bigger priorities to to deal with. Having said that, since the communication was um, sort of uh, compromised because of uh, of covid other businesses were also thinking well look we actually need to do something like this because we can't bring our customers in to view our sites and view our people physically so we at the height of the pandemic uh, and particularly actually at the height of the pandemic in india we were hired to go and um, film a very large uh, factory food processing site in India. And that did come with quite a lot of challenges because for a start, we had to take lots and lots of these COVID tests, any of which, if they'd have come positive, would have been a major problem for the whole project. We hired crew in country, but on the way back, we, we successfully completed the filming at the site. But on the way back, India went onto the red list of the UK. So we got caught in you know that hotel quarantine stuff on the way back wow and um yeah you know that uh, didn't work out commercially particularly brilliantly because obviously i couldn't offload those those costs to the client but um anyway it was it was a great project and it was a good story <laughs> and and i want to talk about stories so um i have a structure that i use for stories which comes from stanislavski's uh, seven questions how important is storytelling in video yeah, narrative is everything. And I, I, I think this is why it's so important um, for, for the viewer to understand that when you hire a video production company to come in and explain your story, it's actually the story that's the most important thing. A lot of people think, yeah, come in, bring your really good cameras and, you know, we'll have uh, this guy here and, and, and that guy there. You know, that, that's, that's secondary. That's planning. That's shoot planning and all of that stuff. But you've got to have a narrative. You've got to have an arc. And to do that, the most important things are to understand some key factors. So I'm going to 
jump in again because I know what a story arc is. But again, that's in in industry. So I'm I'm being a bit bit devil's advocate here because we've got an opportunity for people to understand what the story mm. arc is. So mm. we all know beginning, middle, and end. But can you expand a little bit more on what why the story arc is so important? Yeah, because it's all because of you have to capture the engagement of the person who's watching, and they've got an n number of other things that they're interested in thinking about at that time. So the the, the engagement, which is ultimately what nearly all of, of these kind of uh, projects are about, is what you're ultimately aiming for. So we need to understand what is the objective of, of the film, who are the target audience, and how is it going to be used? What's the distribution medium? Because the way you tell the story is going to change dependent on all of those different things. For instance, a, a, a very young demographic, the target audience, very young, maybe your distribution medium is going to be something more suited to them, like Instagram or TikTok or whatever. For, for um, uh, an older, more professional um, demographic, we may find that YouTube websites and those kind of things are going to be the way that the, uh, the, the, the project is just distributed. And that makes a difference to the kind of content that you will put into the story about how you are going to um, tell this story. So the model I use, um, let's just give you an example for, say, sales and marketing. The framework I use is a thing called SPIN. Okay, now this is a technique that was used in, in selling, uh, account management relationships and so on, where you have the S of SPIN is situation. So you define what the current situation is. The P is problem. You expose what the problem with the current situation is. The I is impact. What is the impact that that problem causes? And that leads to the need, which is ultimately what the solution that that, uh, that customer is going to be presenting. So that's just one methodology of a, of a story arc for, um, you know, for a video. Obviously, at the end, you would usually have a call to action where you say, okay, having ex explained all of this, what's stopping you? Call up or hit this, click below and let's get a demo organized, that kind of thing. Thank you, I really appreciate that. And honestly, I have just put out a post, it went out yesterday on on the social sites and it's gone crazy because I simplified that story arc. And so many people don't understand the importance of it. And of course, you know, you can shoot and, and I don't know if you do this, I know you can shoot in landscape and then obviously cut it down to um, a box and then you can put that on Instagram. Um, and so actually you can repurpose the content, right? Absolutely. So in, in general, when uh, when we go into film with a client, then we'll look at what all the possibilities are post the shoot. So once you've got the stuff in the can, um, you know, they may say, OK, well, look, we do want, a, say, a two and a half minute edit for trade shows and say face to face icebreakers. But we also want a 30 second for for Instagram or something like that. Now, it is important to kind of know these things beforehand because we will shoot with that plan in mind. You know, you could, not everything can be converted, for instance, to vertical mode if you haven't shot it that way. So it's important as a director to understand what are the um, what, what are the, the outputs, the deliverables that we're going to use afterwards and, and film with, with that in mind. And, and that's why I like working with you. Uh, you know, you are one of my chosen videographers. You know, I've got a couple that, well, three or four of you that I work with and I put you forward to my clients. And the reason I put you forward to my clients is because I know that you're going to come at the video from the commercial 
end point like I do. So you're going to look for that end result and where we're going to put that content, where we're going to repurpose that content. So we know that that cost is there at the very beginning. So there's no hidden costs. And that's why I, one of the reasons I like working with you. One of the reasons I asked you onto my my podcast. Well, so, thank, thank you very much. No, but it, it is it is absolutely important that these things not be um, sort of seen as a vanity exercise. And and that's why sometimes videos are seen as a cost rather than an investment. But if you if you project and frame the value of the the deliverable in terms of the tangible business outcomes that can arise afterwards, then you can view it much more as an investment and, and you know have the usual ROI type metrics applied to it. And, and if you employ the, the right videography team and the right person like me behind it who will support and, and guide it through, and I'm not blowing my own trumpet here, but what we do do is we look at future proofing. Now, that is another jargon word, and I, I learned it with when I started working with Intel, but we want to future proof that video we want to make sure that the video you shoot today is still okay to be used in 10 years so we're not looking at just you know shooting a video we're looking at evergreen right yeah i mean this is where um again a little bit of planning is required i would say that you can do that and um and there are certain elements of certain enterprises where there is you know longevity kind of built in to the offer but in some businesses where the, the strategy, the management, and even the actual applications or, or services are being changed very, very quickly, then we have to take that into it as well, because whatever we, we shoot now may not be relevant a, a year or two down the line. So yes, we've got to see how fast moving the, uh, the, the kind of industry is, what the dynamics are, and have a plan in place where we can repurpose content, certain elements of content, but keep the fundamental um, value proposition the same. And I should have said, because in a retail situation, you wouldn't um, shoot one video and then you know, fashion industry, for instance, it's way too, way too fast. You wouldn't have a video that would be there in 10 years time. So I should have been more specific. So great answer there. <laughs> really well done. Who's um, inspired you? I know you've talked about your wife. Who's Yeah, I mean, uh, de definitely uh, family. I mean, they've been a, a fantastic uh, support on my, you know, my wife in particular, because it's not... Um, easy of course if you've had your your husband you know since you've been married in a fairly senior position in a fairly senior company getting a reasonable kind of uh wedge at the end of the month to go into a complete uncertain position but she she could see you know she could see that i had this kind of yearning to to do something different and she supported me all the way and that is absolutely important because there are times that you will even question yourself during the journey and think, hmm, was that actually the right decision? And I, I can say now, yes, it, it, it definitely was. And I don't always you know, measure my success or my position now by the metrics that I used to consider, for instance, in my 20s, you know, what car I'm driving and you know, uh, material evidence of success, holidays in the Caribbean or whatever like that. You know, I'm I'm much more uh, focused these days on you know what I can, what value I can de deliver to clients, as well as my own personal sovereignty of uh, running my own my own business. 
And it can be challenging. It can be lonely. I mean, that's why we we first met for a coffee was we was one we were seeing how we could work together, exploring those possibilities. But also, it's really good to have a good catch up with somebody else who is a, a business owner who has those stresses and strains. Absolutely. I mean, what they you know they say uh, what is it, a problem shared is a problem halved, and you know it, it's important to talk to other people in the same position because. There's any number of brilliant ideas that uh, that can come up from from meetings and just extending your own network. I think it's it's super important to um, to stay networked to meet other people, not only in the kind of business areas that are allied to your own, but in completely different areas as well. So I found uh, a lot of these networking events to be extremely useful, and obviously meeting you was was a, a special bonus. So haven't you launched a podcast? <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, thank you for mentioning that. In fact, you were one of the key inspirations for doing that. So, um, yeah, I mean, my work as a, as a video producer brings me in touch with, with many different uh, businesses. And it made sense, I felt, that, okay, if I'm producing these videos for businesses and talking to business owners uh, a lot of the time, why not bring that to a, a wider audience? Because there's a lot of people, you know, this. many people just don't know what is involved in starting businesses, running businesses, and all the headaches that, uh, that happen, you know, on, on pretty much a daily basis. So uh, I'm, not, I'm not trying to portray it in a negative light. I'm just trying to unveil the realities of, of running businesses. And I've talked to people who, who are solopreneurs. I've talked to people who are heavily funded, hundreds of million dollar worth of, uh, you know, uh, businesses that they're running. But fundamentally at the heart of this, the people are basically the same. We're all basically the same. Some people are, you know, have, have got really brilliant stories about their businesses. And I found that a very, uh, a very good um, sort of avenue uh, for me. So I have started a podcast, um, only eight episodes. So I'm a way behind you, Kirsty, but um, it's coming along and yeah, people do seem to be engaging. So I've, I've been really happy with I'm, I'm really pleased you did it and all for a coffee. I love it. Um, so I was going to ask you about moments uh, where you've just felt, because we all get it, you know, you wake up in the morning and particularly, you know, I, we, we talked about, you and I have talked about um, scaling up and of course I've just taken on a, a somebody to do some of my socials and not my personal ones, just some of my business ones. And it's it's interesting to see, so shout out to Zoe there, Zoe Morel, um, very proud of you, very, very proud of you. Um, and you'll see more of Zoe coming forward and, and talking. But it does get lonely. It can be challenging. So when you hit that moment, how do you bounce yourself back up? Well, I mean, it's, it's incredibly difficult. In fact, one, one of the first major problems I had was really early on in my business where I realized, okay, look, I'm not a cameraman. I understand the basics of uh, cinematography and so on, but that's not my specialist skill set. So I'm going to use um, a cameraman to to film this project. And this was one of my really early projects where I desperately needed, you know, portfolio. However, it turned out that the guy that um, I thought knew his way around the uh, the camera work turned out to be an editor himself and was passing off this stuff that he had shown me as his work. Um, and, you know, we got to the site and I only discovered this when I looked at the rushes that night and saw, oh, hang on a minute, the white balance is off, the focus is off, no one will do that. 
And uh, I thought, oh my God, we've got a serious problem here. Because if there's one thing that you cannot solve in post-production, it is focus. Yeah. Nearly everything else can be solved. And there are some AI things now. But in those days, in 2013, you, you could not do anything about focus. You've got to get your focus pin sharp at that time. So I, did, I, I decided, all right, look, I'm going to have to offload this guy and I'm going to have to do this myself. <laughs> so I, I learned what I needed to learn. And I, you know, I had told you that I had done a documentary intensive course anyway, and I worked with some DOPs, directors of photography. So I did know my way around and I, I salvaged that thing. And I, um, I got to the end of it and they were very, very happy, but that was a bit of a tricky point in right at the beginning, you know, you don't expect to start that way, but that's how it goes. But look at you, 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 you bend, you moved and you, delivered i think that's incredible we've had some brilliant brilliant comments so i'm just going to turn to them um so we have got annette who joined us this morning um and she's saying you know thank you for clarifying earlier and then uh, as far as i know india has now overtaken china in population uh, yeah yeah so wow um and where can i find about the seven questions annette they're on my socials at the moment and you can always drop me a dm you know that it's also a blog actually on um my website www oh gosh i'm, I'm promoting uh www.kvdb.co.uk and it is all about stanislavski's seven questions mm -hmm. and tells you that i still drink a cup of tea with my elbow up and i still do there's a reason for it um jonathan joined us and he says 100 percent agree on this engagement is so valuable you've really touched people this morning it's brilliant um have to shoot off now but thank you both very informative from uh, jonathan and Moran. yes Moran, networking is vital i felt felt overwhelmed initially and then realized there are people with similar issues i went to one yesterday and the person sitting next to me was in exactly the same place jenny jenny gordon been on the show and honestly it was like oh yeah i needed that i really needed that so this is where you've been talking and i'm so proud of you because you were like we won't be able to talk for half now we have so you get to throw a question at me i have no idea what it's going to be Fantastic. Well, you know, you've been a brilliant host. And yes, let me uh, let me uh, ask you one. You, you've had, I suppose, for, for most people, it's an unusual career to have been an actor. And, you know, acting comes with its own prestige and a kind of social order. For you to walk away from that career and um, begin as a solopreneur, which certainly at the in the early days is anything but kind of glamorous. How did you handle the the kind of psychological roller coaster of how, how the world saw you as an actor versus a, as an entrepreneur? So that's really generally an interesting one because I put myself through university. So I went back and did a a, a conversion course. So I had a diploma in musical theatre, which meant I could do a couple of Sorry, everybody who's done musical theatre, but it meant I could do some really good pirouettes and I could sing. Um, and it meant I was really good at potential auditioning for Western shows. And I'd hung up my dance shoes when I was 22 because I realised it wasn't for me. It really wasn't. Um, I was very much an actor who could sing, not a dancer who could act. Um, and at it, it, that time, it was really difficult. And I just didn't want to be hoofing for... Uh, the next 20 years and, and that was a choice that I made so I went into acting and I had a lovely career mm. I had some great tv roles in BAFTA award-winning drama so yeah, I had a lovely career and then I found myself at in my mid-30s um and I just wanted to, 
I remember waking up one morning and going, this is really hard business, really, really hard. You're cast, you're reliant on other people, you're constantly pitching yourself to get work. You're writing off letters yourself. Your agent is putting you forward for work. You're dr drumming and drumming and drumming and drumming and drumming. And actually, so you're hunting, you're farming and you're gathering all at the same time. So that is the, the sales process. And actually I was tired. And I remember yeah. one morning with pure clarity realizing that I was in my mid thirties. I didn't own a house. I was at this point doing my degree in my parents' house, uh, writing my dissertation. And I went, I don't want this for the rest of my life. If I continue on this path, and it was like three doors opened up in front of me. If I continue on this path, I'm going to end up in the Actors Benevolent Home run by Equity. And I just thought, I don't want that. That isn't the future I want. And it was a real cold, really, really hard decision, but also very clear that in my mid-30s, I had at least another 35 years of life. Um, I hadn't got children at this point. And I, at this point, I was super independent. So I wanted to buy my own house. I hasten to add six months later, I met my husband and we bought the house together. We now have a child. But at that point, it was like, I need to go and do something different. So I put myself through university. I completely got, I got a degree that I wanted more from. Um, there was an idea of becoming a teacher. It wasn't for me. At that point, I had supported myself. And when I did uni, I was running 10 jobs, <laughs> genuinely. Um, so I was writing my dissertation in between running a job for Nintendo, running a contract for Intel, running another contract for Straight Cut or some other Robinson Fruit Shoot. And I was on the road and writing. At one point, one of the companies I wrote, I, I, I worked for, bite a copy of The Beggar's Opera to me. So thank you, Duncan. Um, so I could write my essay in time because I could, he needed me to work. But I was like, I've got a deadline. I've got a deadline. So I think you only taught me about deadlines. <laughs> but balancing and juggling was exhausting. At the end of that, I graduated. And then I blew my life up, completely blew my life up. Um, because I was burnt out. And I was honest about this last week. I was burnt out. And um, I ended up with shingles, tonsillitis, and just exhausted at the end of the day after my graduation. And instead of taking the time like you did to, to sit, I blew it up. And then I had to start everything from scratch. And I met Dennis and then I got um, a job with retail profiling. Mike Evans took a chance on me, so thank you, Mike. Um, and then I got moved to D-Link and then from D-Link I moved to Samsung, which then later became Hanwha. And so I learned the bit of business I didn't have. So I'd learned the structure of how to write documents in my mid thirties, got diagnosed with dyslexia and dyspraxia, in my mid thirties. So I learned the foundation of how to write because I didn't have that skill. You know, I was an actor. So you have to understand I was an actor. I knew how to do a script. I didn't know how to write. So I learned the foundations of writing doing the degree. I then went into business and learned business skills and spent over 10 years learning, but also bringing the skills I'd got as an event manager, as a sales trainer, as an actor. And suddenly when my husband got a job that meant that we were going to leave the UK, which we didn't do, I could, launch didn't quite know what I was going to do a bit like you I had to take some time sat and then went oh I'm quite good at communication <laughs> so the original plan was communication skills now I actually now call myself a communication specialist so it's been a full 360 to get back to here but actually I pull every single bit of experience that I have through all of those and I hasten to add those 
yeah let's work this one out no for over 40 years no yeah 30 years over 30 years of working in retail all the way through and the skills I used to even down to a retail calendar come from even a Saturday job I had at 13 so yeah. nearly 40 nearly 40 years because I'm only 51 so yeah so a lot of experience is poured into what I do today but it was hard and I didn't know I was going to do it and it wasn't easy to walk away from being an actor because I was very entrenched in that industry. You know, mm. people knew me. They knew me and my partner at the time, and we were seen as a acting duo, and, and it was really high profile. But it just wasn't – it didn't fit me, not any longer. It just didn't fit. I so love was, there, was there a gut instinct part to this where you felt, you know, something just doesn't feel right? I yeah, it was – I remember saying to my mum, I'm going to stop, and she just went – but you've done it since you were eight. And I went, yeah. So I've been an actor for 30 years. That's what I've done. That's a normal lifetime career. Mm. You know, when you actually think about it, 30 years in an industry, and, and I really did do 30 years as an actor, starting as Heinz Baked Beans at eight years old. I had a career for 30 years. I made money from it. I, I got employed. I had a great time. But... I didn't want to do it anymore. I do. I'd still love I me. Mean, look at me. I'm, I'm a podcast host. Of course, I still perform. Um, and if Spielberg called me tomorrow, of course, I'd go and do it. I'd love to. But it wasn't, it just wasn't, it wasn't going to give me a house. It wasn't going to give me the stability that I wanted for the second part of my life, for my middle years. Mm. <laughs> well, it sounds totally weird. Worked. And it worked out well, hasn't it? I, I, I think it's, I love what I do. Yeah. yeah, when I was talking for Oxlep on Tuesday and I went in and there were seven people who were learning how to pitch and they're doing this big workshop. And I walked in and with my crazy energy and because I'm an actor, I could show them different ways of walking into the room. But I will say the first thing I always coach on is how to walk, which takes me back to arts ed, which takes me back to my voice class where my voice teacher Laura told us off for trying to sing the perfect note when we were working on voice because there's a difference so I use everything that I've learned all the way through my life because I was 16 for that class so it's really interesting and a great question because yeah it it didn't just happen there was a lot of choices that I made and a lot of imposter syndrome and a lot of oh my goodness I am not intelligent enough to even get a degree and that's what people don't realise. I thought I was stupid. Um, I don't use that word lightly, but I thought I was an embarrassment. I thought I was stupid. Um, I was in my mid-30s, divorced, and I really, really felt lost. So really interesting. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I always felt that I have this thing called my Sunday evening test, which is very simply that if on Sunday evening you're not looking forward to Monday morning, you need to probably think about making a change. And uh, I had failed a few Sunday evening tests and I made the change. Brilliant. I'm going to leave it there because it's a beautiful note to, to leave it on. I may change your tagline to my Sunday evening test because I like that very much. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure and an honour to have you on the show. Thank you very much, Kirsty. It's also been an honour to be on your show. Thank you so much for being a, a great podcast host, and I wish you all the best for the podcast. Thank you.